I'm Virginia Schutte. And I'm Bethann German-Merkel, and this is Meteor, the honest podcast about science communication with impact. The world's a mess right now, and it can be hard to feel hopeful that what we do can actually make a difference. But as we're seeing again from so many longtime organizers and activists, hope is a verb. So our guiding principle for this season is saying yes, and how saying yes makes room for action, accountability, impact, and even hope in the realm of SciComm. One impact we're working on making right now is through SciComm Step, Sparking Transitions for Experienced Professionals. It's our next big effort to make change by building relationships and helping people take action. SciComm Step is an intensive professional development program in which participants build and practice a series of self-generated career advancement action plans that will help them meet their goals. The fall 2022 cohort is fully funded by the National Association for Science Writers, and you can apply until August 19th, which is tomorrow, by visiting our website, meteorpsychom.org. Okay, now on to today's episode. We feel like there are lots of great SciComm spaces already devoted to entry-level skill building, so we'd like to share some of the advanced user conversations that we are already having with one another. And we want to open up these conversations beyond just us. We are really enjoying hearing what you think, and we'd love to hear more. You can do that on Twitter or through our website, both of which are linked in the show notes. Okay, we are going to say it straight. There is a lot of jargon in science. And so probably unsurprisingly, there's also a lot of jargon in science communication. We've been chatting with each other about this for a while. And ranting. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, So we thought we'd go out on a limb and say what jargon we think works and what matters and what jargon debates feel um, maybe like a little unnecessary. (laughs) Yes. And we think that this matters because the words that we say have a lot to do with how we go about the work we do. And if we're trying to say yes and take positive action for change, being careful with our language is going to matter. Yeah, I think of this, (laughs) this conversation as almost like, to me, it feels like bystander training almost where if we practice using the words that we really intend to use now, then they will pop out of our mouth when it when it really matters, instead of just the things we hear most commonly coming out. I, I think it's also worth giving some attention to whether you disagree with how certain words are used in particular types of situations. And like we were talking about a couple of weeks ago, are you going to raise your voice? Are you going to take a side on that? Are you going to just let something go? You know, this is the stuff we're texting about in the background. So here we go. Yeah. So let's, so let's get started. <laughs> the notes say go out on a limb and I'm feeling like, Bethan, why don't you start? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, because to be honest, I keep adding to our list on this. And I'm going to say this might get people's hackles up. I have seen and heard a lot of people get really worked up about facilitation versus training. And I have to say, <laughs> I just don't get worked up about this. I just don't think that this is the thing that we need to put our energy into as a field. Listeners, I have to tell you, my arms are crossed. I'm kind of hunched over my stomach. Like, I I love having opinions, but I guess I'm nervous sometimes when people really care about something. Um, because, like, I just, 
I don't really care about these two words battling each other to the death, but Bethann, I know exactly <laughs> what you mean when you say that some people get worked up about it. I wrote someone an email months ago asking them to speak about their experience as a trainer. And in their response, they corrected me. They said they're a facilitator and their correction was so polite, but it was not neutral on their stance about the term. They had a stance um, about the term trainer. And I, you know, again, I don't, I don't really care which word you use as long as you match your values, but I just, I, now I'm so nervous. I don't want to, sorry, I'm saying half words. I don't want to offend anybody accidentally <laughs> using the wrong word. And to me, these things describe that they like, they mean different things. I don't, I don't think they're interchangeable. I agree. And I will be perfectly clear. This is why I'm not entirely sure this is the debate that matters for me in SciComm. But I have absolutely learned things from people in trainings I've run. And I expect that to happen every time I give a training. But if we say, for example, something like inclusive SciComm facilitation, even the people within our science communication profession probably would not reliably or universally think that inclusive SciComm facilitation actually means what we're doing when we are offering a training or a course or some kind of thing that is helping someone get better at something, right? The actual transmission of skills and knowledge so that others can use them. You know, you you just said that someone in our SciComm profession, I thought you were going to say someone in our SciComm community, which reminded me that so the person that I was talking to came from a different part of the world than I live currently. Mm-hmm. And so I, I tend to follow and keep tabs on a lot of communicators and SciComm groups who are based in Europe, maybe because that's where I was when I first shifted into SciComm. I was living in Germany. And so I, I wonder, and I've noticed this, but I can't think of any specific examples. I've noticed this with other words. Um, I wonder if there's like regional dialects when it comes to the language of the science communication profession, depending on where your kind of primary or home community is? Oh, I think that's absolutely true. If we just tune in to the conversations that are being driven by big efforts in places like Germany and the UK versus Canada versus the United States, even, well, here's one example. Indigenous, Aboriginal, First Nations, Native Americans, those are all terms that are more standardized in certain parts of the world that we absolutely want to be accounting for in science communication. So I think you're right that maybe uh, an outgrowth of the, the different social cultural framings that are underpinning or funding or motivating science communication work. I'm agreeing with you. Yeah, yeah. Cool. So then can we can we check that off our list? It's something we don't particularly care about, but you do you? Yeah, I think that's <laughs> what I was trying to say. <laughs> cool. Okay, great. And then if you accidentally <laughs> offend someone, hopefully it's going to be okay. <laughs> right, right. So then let's hit one that I do actually think matters. Scientific communication versus science communication or SCICOM. And I'll give just a little bit of context here. Earlier this summer, I co-authored a paper on finding shared values and goals in SciComm through stories. 
And I'm going to just shout out to my amazing co-authors on that project, Skylar Bayer, Priya Shukla, and Evelyn Valdez-Ward. It was amazing working with them on that. What I'm getting at here is that, that in that paper, we were careful to find a really clear line between scientific communication and SCICOM. And I think that that distinction matters because what, what I mean and what I understand a lot of my colleagues and you, Virginia, in SCICOM to mean when we say SCICOM is not really focused on conference presentations, seminar presentations, and published peer-reviewed literature. Mostly we are talking about sharing science, engaging with communities, much more interrelated and reciprocal and meaningful types of work in which science is at play, but is not the only thing. And so I think it is actually valuable when we are trying to help folks learn why those distinctions matter, that we give them distinct terms to help them orient. So I'll restate, for me, scientific communication is when specialists are talking to specialists and Mm -hmm. science communication is when specialists are talking to non-specialists. And these are very shorthand terms. I know talking to implies unidirectional. I mean, all sorts of things included in science communication, two ways, okay, and all that stuff. But I think fundamentally, are you keeping it within the specialist world or are you looking outside for some kind of component to your project? And I agree. I think this one matters a ton because since I do training, but I am a freelancer, I often get asked to do training. And this is the like the first question that I ask people is, you know, what, <laughs> what do you want of me? <laughs> um, because I, I feel like I often get asked, can you do a science communication training? And I'll say, okay, which one? Or, or like what flavor? Because there's yeah. a lot of different science communication trainings that we can do, you know, which which topic are you interested in? And the last time I did this, their responses were all about science communication. But then I got on the phone with them to make sure we were really on the same page. And it turned out they were interested in scientific communication, mm-hmm. which you know, help is, us do a better PowerPoint. I want my yeah. graphs to look more engaging or easier to read. Yeah. Yes. Career yeah. advancement through scientific communication. And so, you know, a lot of the same principles underlie you know, communication with peers as with outside audiences, but it's a huge difference in what we're talking about, the skills that I'm focusing on. So it means completely different things. I absolutely agree that this one matters. Yeah. I also feel like it's less controversial because I feel like, I mean, mean, again, (laughs) I feel like it matters. And so to me, it's less controversial because it just matters, (laughs) period. Um, but (laughs) But I think that puts the trainer and facilitator thing into a different kind of focus. Um, so I feel like then if we encounter someone who uses trainer and facilitator differently than us, then to me, I, I feel like that indicates like, cool, maybe we've reached outside our, our typical communities. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I feel like scientific and science communication, if I encounter someone who thinks differently than me, I'm going to be like, oh, I don't think we agree fundamentally about some things that underpin our jobs. Right. 
Right. And not looking for a fight kind of disagree, but like we are understanding what we are trying to do here differently. Correct. That's exactly right. So I'm going to interpret a difference in terms differently for a swap in terms that I think really matters versus something where it's like, cool, regional dialect. Neat. Nice to meet you. Right. And not to completely ride this into the ground, but I do (laughs) understand what people are trying to say about trainer and facilitator in the sense that like, we don't want to show up as a sage on a stage, like here, let me just tell you the things you need to know. I just think that we can kind of deal with that without nitpicking that particular pair of words. I agree with you. I feel like the people that I've encountered that use facilitator instead of when I would use trainer, I just have loosened my definition of what training means to include facilitation and guided reflection and hearing from participants and that sort of thing. So I think we're both dealing with the same kind of issue, but in different ways. So some people swap out the term. I've just decided that what trainer means to me is different than like a very narrow definition for someone who just lectures. Yeah. I think that works for me. So another one we talked about earlier this season when we were talking about collaboration, I think we run into words like help, partner, and collaborate. And I'm just kind of flagging this here. We talked a lot about this in that other episode, that those kinds of concepts mean really different things in and beyond academia in terms of who has what kind of authority, who is supposed to be providing what kind of financial access or support and things like that. And I I think understanding those nuances can make a big difference in how people who are doing science communication or advising on it experience working on science communication projects. Yeah. Um, But I'm just going to blow right past this since you said you're just flagging it (laughs) because you're right. We did talk about it earlier. And what I want to hear you talk about while we still have time Um, can you please say some somewhat heated words about blogging? (laughs) And wait, before you start, before you start, listeners, I have to tell you the context here is that every time we run across advice on blogging, (laughs) we send each other, well, no, Beth Ann sends me (laughs) a text message or an email that is like, look at this. Have you seen this? And then she has nice opinions for me. Um, and it's a good time. So Beth Ann, please tell us about blogging. What Virginia is actually saying is that I have a real pet peeve about this idea that blogs are dead and newsletters are the new big thing. And I'm I'm just going to say it this way. Substack is a blogging platform and those are not newsletters that people are sending for the most part. And also blogging isn't dead. We can just now make some other company wealthy by using a platform that lets us also make a bit of money off of it by blogging. <laughs> and I don't have all the right words for this, but I've been looking for some articulate rant about this from some eloquent writer in the world, and I still can't find one. So you're getting my version. <laughs> um, basically, blogging is dead. Subscribe to my Substack newsletter. Just really fires me up. Newsletters and blogs, in my understanding, professionally, have always been very different things with different functions and different capacities to inform and empower and instigate. And many of the so called newsletters on Substack are blogs that are doing the good, essential, and maybe even urgent work of blogging. 
while we're being told that the blog is dead and the newsletter is here to save us. And also the newsletter isn't new. Maybe it's the pretense for me that the newsletter has hatched, like fully formed like Venus from the seashell of all the brilliance and the messiness of the internet. Maybe that's what's driving me up the wall. Basically, serial writing, both fiction and nonfiction, has been around since before the United States was even a country. And I'm having trouble with us erasing all that history. The newsletter isn't new. <laughs> um, so there you go. <laughs> that's, that's the kind of conversations that we have with each other. Uh, I, I agree, because I tend to think of social media as a micro blogging platform. And mm-hmm. so I, I know you come at it from the perspective of newsletters, because I think that's the realm that you deal with, uh, you know, more right now. Um, but when people are like, what do I say? You know, like, I, I advise people like, you know, techniques that you would use to journal. That's the kind of things where mm-hmm. I advise people to, to help them come up with what can they say on, on social media. And so I tend to think of it fundamentally as a form of microblogging. It's just there are different kind of quirks to each platform that you might be on. So I, I totally agree that it feels like people are kind of trying to make a statement when they say that blogs are dead. And it's it just, eh. <laughs> Meh, yeah, <laughs> and almost all of my favorite things that people use Substack to deliver are blogs, but we're calling them newsletters. And and I will grant you, listeners, that this probably matters even less <laughs> than what I am saying doesn't matter about us getting our panties in a twist about trainer versus facilitator. But this one just gets me. <laughs> do I have to bleep out the word the p word I hate that word <laughs> really yes <laughs> okay I'm moving on I'm moving on I'm moving us on the next the thing that I wanted to talk about next was um was citizen science because I think this one actually matters and I feel like this one is still evolving how people feel about citizen science I feel like a couple years ago I started seeing a lot of people talking about citizen science being potentially exclusionary because what about people who are not actual citizens and then the thing that people are switching we're switching to is community science um but recently i've seen people talking about how citizen science as a term has been codified into legal institutional documents and government policies and so mm-hmm. this is yeah so even if you don't agree with the connotation of the term citizen science you even if what comes out of your mouth and goes on your website is slightly different you have to be legally in the clear and kind of policy wise in the clear here and so a change is not just as simple as saying it different uh to an audience which i find just fascinating it is and and i would like to chime in here because i feel like this is for me very much like trainer and facilitator. I understand the impulse, but I am not convinced that the word choice is accomplishing the impulse. You mean switching from citizen science to community science? Exactly. For one reason, a lot of people have no idea that we have had this conversation Mm. about whether it should be citizen science or community science. Mm. And There is also the reality 
that community science is a whole branch of ecosystem science and a, a way of doing ecology. And so to decide that the solution to the citizen science as a term dilemma is to use a term that is already very deeply related to another whole practice of science doesn't feel like it's quite accomplished what it's going for. Hmm. I I have heard the term civic science used, which I feel Mm -hmm. like it's at the, the kind of aspect of citizen that's like, I'm a societal citizen, not like a legal citizen. And so I like the term civic science, but then again, there are, uh, you know, units of scientific institutions that are named civic science, whatever. And I feel like they have very specific connotations. So this is one where I have, I've heard people talk about the exclusionary aspects potentially of citizen science. I also feel like I've heard people talk about community science being co-opted from some communities who use it uh, to talk about indigenous ways of knowing and and traditional Mm -hmm. knowledge. Mm -hmm. Uh, And so I feel like this feels to me like it matters a lot, but I don't know what to do about it. Um, I have not had to recommend that a client take any action on it in a couple of years. And so I have not looked it up thoroughly, but I feel like the next time somebody asks me to do that for them, I'm going to do some research because I, it, it feels more difficult to me. I agree with you. It feels like what we're reaching for with that has not been resolved. Yeah. And I want to maybe close out with one more set of terms that to me has that same sort of unresolved, but for different reasons vibe. Um, I know a lot of science communication and science impact folks have become pretty picky and precise about when, where, and if at all, they use the term stakeholders. And yeah, a lot of the folks around us appear not to value the distinction between stakeholders versus audience versus the general public. Hmm. And, And I will say, this is a sort of learning in public thing for me right now. I relied on, leaned heavily on, and taught pretty deliberately the term stakeholders instead of audience or instead of general public for the last several years. I wanted undergraduate students especially to understand that it wasn't about talking at people, that we weren't going to accomplish what we're trying to in the world if we just show up and think that people don't know stuff and talk at them. And so things like audience weren't, were not viable for me as a term. General public isn't viable for all the reasons that we talk about in advanced science communication circles. And so I had landed on stakeholders. And then this spring or summer, when that paper I mentioned earlier came out, it came out right at the same time that this conversation around stakeholders surfaced. And our paper, we use stakeholders. We flag that it's an issue, especially with indigenous communities and relationships, because they have historically been excluded as stakeholders. And also Mm -hmm. at the same time, they are rights holders, like their, their legal, and I will say moral status in the room, I consider distinct from just folks who have interests. Right. And I've also seen some pushback on the notion of stakeholders, because it's a kind of corporate borrowed word. And then there's also the whole like stake my claim on stuff, which cycles back to, you know, disposition 
and genocide. And so all of a sudden I'm like, oh, (laughs) I've been pushing this word and it is not a good word, no matter how well intended my use and instruction of it was. And so I am actively trying to understand what I can teach people in my class, which starts in about not too long. Um, What can I, what can I equip them with instead? So this is my current jargon project. So this feels like a good way to kind of wrap up this whole conversation with like an attempt at a bottom line. I, I have a couple jargon differences mean that success, you're exchanging ideas potentially from different perspectives. And I like that. But I also think that you're exactly right that you do you works fine for me until it is a term that is equity or justice related. Um, so I, I feel like, you know, you'll have to speak for yourself, but I am willing to do a lot of research to get it contextually correct and to use a more precise term to describe exactly what I mean when the consequences are that someone feels as if they are being actively excluded or are being um, othered. So there are definitely some things that are worth getting right. And it seems like it's going to be an ongoing conversation to keep up with how to do some things well. Absolutely. I, I mean, we have so many examples of this, even just in terms of words we're capitalizing this year that a couple of years ago, we mm. weren't. I mm-hmm. think I, I think it's spot on to sum this up as this is an environment in which no matter how experienced we are, we get to keep learning. And we, I also think have a responsibility to keep learning. Hey, do you remember back to the beginning when we were like, why does this matter? (laughs) Maybe that was why. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Because people matter because our job is about people and people matter. So words matter. I think that's perfect. So over to you, listeners. What's an aspect of SciComm jargon that you think really matters? Or maybe one that you think is downright silly? You've been listening to Meteor, the honest podcast about science communication with impact. To join this conversation, tell us the words you'd rather use. You can do that on Twitter using at MeteorSciComm, or you can submit a note on our website, MeteorSciComm.org. Talk soon!